Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. My favorite words. Uh, it isn't used very often. Sometimes my wife laughs at me when I use it and chuckles at me, but I love it so much because it's this compelling, attractive, positive word that originated in my language because of a really close friend of mine and a historical figure that I studied about the same time I met this friend of mine. In 1998, I met a, I met a guy named Mike Kopp, and I started coaching him as a church planter. And Mike was a, a guy who loved the word winsome, and he was a definition to me of the word winsome. He grew up in South Dakota. He was an outdoorsman, a hunter, avid, avid thrill guy, bull rider, went on to become an army ranger paratrooper in the first Gulf War, and then he went on to become a hotshot firefighter, dropping out of airplanes into forest fires to fight him. And then he, he went on to school and, and eventually became a church planner, but he was this kind of, politically, he was this Reagan conservative, still is kind of this Reagan conservative type of an ideology. And he came out of very conservative churches where suits and ties were worn. And he went in to plant a church in ultra-liberal earthy, vegan, animal rights activist-leaning Flagstaff, Arizona. And he learned to have such positive, winsome relationships across all of those social, cultural, political barriers that several hundred people, college students mostly, became followers of Jesus Christ in his church. And he's gone on to continue to be that kind of winsome person. Winsome is this pregnant, rich, beautiful word that speaks of the ability to establish positive, attractive, genuine friendship across barriers that would normally divide us. And often, especially in today, when we experience those divisions that divide us, it results in alienation. It results in anger and argument and, and, and rejection, it, it, hard feelings. It results in sound-biting each other to death, doesn't it? But winsome people somehow bridge those gaps and genuinely befriend those who would normally be opposed to them and they become attractive to others. We uh, got to celebrate this last week, one of the most winsome people in history, St. Patrick on St. Patrick's Day. I know, we, I know some of you love your green beer on St. Patrick's Day. That's fine. But uh, St. Patrick should be celebrated because he's one of the most winsome, effective uh, missionaries in all of history. St. Patrick, at the age of 16, he was uh, growing up in a very well, fairly wealthy, moderately wealthy, moderately just kind of nominally Christian home in Britain, and he was forcibly taken from his home by Irish raiders and enslaved for six years to a Druid priest. He served him as his shepherd. He records that during that time as a slave, he actually met Jesus in a really profound way, and his faith became such an all-encompassing thing in his life. And after he'd been a slave for six years, he had a dream from God, and then the dream God showed him this ship that was waiting to take him back to Britain to be with his family. So he got up that very night. He fled 200 miles to the coast and found a ship that indeed took him back home. 
He got back home with his uh, family in Britain and, and uh, very quickly began to feel like God was compelling him to become a priest. And so he went in to study for the priesthood in France for several years. And then again, God showed up with another dream one night and called him in a very vivid, specific way to go back to the people who had once been his captors and be a missionary to him. Now, it was amazing. Because there had been missionaries sent to Ireland, but Ireland was such a a brutal place filled with people who believed as part of their religion of the day, their pagan religion of the day, and child sacrifice, and they were just commonly known as raiders. They were just a brutal people that missionaries had gone there before, but many had been martyred, and the ones who hadn't been martyred had been completely ineffective. But Patrick, because he understood the culture, he'd lived in it, and he also went in with a very different mindset than the normal missionaries of the day. He decided he was going to go into Ireland, and he wasn't going to demand that they change anything unless it was just absolutely critical because there was no way they could possibly practice that same thing and be a Christian. So there were a lot of their practices and a lot of their festivals that they had focused on uh, de- demonic worship and, and stuff that he just reframed and helped them learn to have those same habits and those same festivals, but now focused on a pure worship of God. And his, he was so winsome, even though many times after he went back as a missionary, he was still captured and uh, escaped or captured and freed a number of times and he lived almost every day with the idea that this could be my last day because he never knew when somebody was going to come and get him. In a little over his lifetime, almost 100% of Ireland became Christian because of his winsomeness. It was an amazing story in church history. He was that winsome, reaching across personal injustice, cultural barriers, reaching across such huge moral divides and belief divides, and yet creating such winsome attractiveness to Jesus that nearly 100% became followers in just over his lifetime. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when you think of the church in America today or your church experience or the stereotypes of church in America, you may not think of church and church people as being that kind of winsome. And the reality is you would be right in line with Patrick because in his day, he not only swam upstream in the Irish culture, but he practiced his missionary methods in such a way that was opposed to the way most of the church was doing it that, uh, that he swam upstream in that way as well. And his approach made such a radical difference. It was exponentially more effective than the other missionaries of his day, not only in reaching people for Christ, but creating disciples that were strong and solid followers of Jesus. And both my friends, Mike and St. Patrick base their life on being winsome in friendship in much the same way as the passage we're going to look at today of an interaction that Jesus has where he teaches us how to live differently in the face of differences that would normally divide us. Now, before we jump into that, there's a side lesson I want you to have, because if you look in your, t- in your Bible, you're going to see right before this passage, this little phrase that you'll see in just a couple places in the Bible where it says, the earliest manuscripts do not have this portion of the text in them. So the question becomes then, is this text that I'm about to read reliable? Or is it unreliable? Because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. I mean, one of the main criterion for determining something being in the Bible was that it would show up in the earliest of all manuscripts. But in this particular instance, we can have full confidence that this indeed is an accurate accounting of a real interaction Jesus had. Because even though 
this text doesn't show up in the everyday Christian's Bible on a consistent basis until the 4th century. Uh, as early as just after 100 A.D., there is a reference to this particular text. Uh, and so think about that. Just like 10 years after the eyewitnesses had finally died, there was a witness, there was somebody recording the fact that people who were with the eyewitnesses had heard this story and knew that it was an accurate story of Jesus' life. And then St. Augustine himself actually comments it on in the early 4th century, and he says that about this text, he says it was originally removed from the early texts because the teachers of the church feared that it would be so easily misinterpreted and misunderstood that it would create a license for people to be involved in sexual sin and treat sin lightly. But again, it validates the authenticity of it because what he's saying is that the early church removed it even though it was accurate because they didn't want to deal with having to explain it to the people of the church. So let's read this passage that I think we can have complete confidence in, and it illustrates, I think, one of Jesus' major teachings for us that we're going to interact with today, too. It's in John 8, and it says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. And said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we ask that you would come and that you would, um, through this text and through an examination of how you acted and your spirit coming to us, even and applying it to our lives right now, that you would teach us to reach across the divides of relationship in our life, that we would become the most winsome people because your life is our life, and we live like you live. So just come and help us right now understand how to apply this in our daily living today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this passage has a lot to to teach us, and to glean those lessons from it, we're going to address the passage by asking two questions of the passage. The first question we're going to ask is, how does this passage teach us to overcome distance in relationships that often happen because of sin or guilt or differences or offense that we experience? And the second question is, how do we overcome the noise of the crowd and learn to respond to people in the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrating the life of Jesus. So the first question, how do we, how does this passage teach us to deal with the distance of relationship that comes because of sin and guilt? I mean, we all experience this in our lives. We all experience the awkward and uncomfortable when a distance in relationships, when there's a problem, a disagreement over sin or morality or guilt. You see, when we ourselves have sinned, we experience it. 
because somebody comes to us and talks about it. And what's our response? We either feel guilty, right? Or we want to defend ourselves a little bit. I'm not so bad. You know, and we get into those arguments with people. We experience this. It creates conflict in the relationship. It, it creates this feeling of us and them rather than uh, these friendship moments uh, where we're together in this. We, we go away from friendship and we, it's us and them, right? And if you've ever reached out to someone even who's caught in, in, in a bad destructive behavior or sin in their life, you've experienced as well because the minute you bring it up, it brings this awkwardness into the relationship, right? Because the issue comes up. Now, I suspect I may experience this a little more than you as a pastor because when I go out and I talk to someone and they find out I'm a pastor, so frequently the conversation takes on this guilty tone. Oh, I should be in church more. Or, you know, or or I'm in a crowd and people are talking about going out and having a drink and all of a sudden they find out I'm a pastor and they don't know what I think about it. So all of a sudden they become really uncomfortable and awkward and embarrassed and the conversation just becomes difficult. I mean, the Bible is not against drinking. Jesus drank. Paul drank. It's against abuse of that. It's against becoming drunk, but it's not against that. But still, they don't know that, so they always act awkward and weird around me. And don't you ever just have those conversations with people and just want them to be themselves? I mean, it's just so much nicer. I just, I just want people, even if they feel awkward about their own sin or if they feel awkward not knowing what I think, I just want people to be themselves. I mean, it's just so much nicer, isn't it? But people often respond. I think that's one of the reasons we have a hard time even having discussions of faith with people is because the minute we bring up faith with people, they have this awkward place where the the conversation moves a little bit away from friendship and they start feeling this us and them awkward moment. And no matter how good we are at trying to be caring or winsome in that moment to make that not have to be there, no matter how good we are, sometimes it's just going to be there anyway, just because the person's thoughts about their own, their own self or just because their thoughts about religion and it gets in the way. On the other hand, this passage also highlights one of the greatest temptations that we face as people as we grow in our character and as we grow in our faith, that the, one of the greatest temptations is for us to fall into the us and them trap. And we see that with the religious leaders in this text. They bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and it's this us and them moment. Where, uh, this us and them moment turns them into crusaders to defeat and diminish the other side by being right, by being wiser, by being more, inf- more influential or better or louder until they can get them into submission, right? And the context indicates the religious leaders are bringing this woman as a disposable pawn in their greater good agenda, which their greater good agenda was to stop Jesus, this person who was upsetting the apple cart and making all sorts of rumblings and problems for them in their mind and they're not concerned at all with this woman. I mean, she's a non-person to them. She's an adulterer, which I always look at this text and go, I thought adultery took two, so why is there only one here? You know, that's just kind of a weird part of the text. But the religious leaders have in their minds this perfect trap. It's this perfect trap when they ask Jesus what he should do, what they should do. Because if Jesus says, stone her, 
then the Jewish leaders have every bit of ability to discredit Jesus before his followers because Jesus is seen as this preacher of mercy, this friend of sinners, and they can discredit him now if he says stoner. And, and, and even beyond that, if he says stoner, they can make him into a criminal because it, it was illegal under the Roman government to issue a decree to put somebody to death without Roman government approval. So if Jesus did this and they acted on it, he would be a criminal before Rome and that would serve their purposes just fine. And and if he said, no, you shouldn't stone him, then they could easily look back at the Bible and say, well, the Bible says right here that that's the just penalty for this sin. And therefore, how can you be speaking for God if you discount the word of God itself? And they could paint Jesus and discredit him as a charlatan, right? A person who is easy on sin and therefore promotes sin. And isn't that the struggle? that we often have in life, that we often face in our relationships, a fear that we might be too easy on sin and therefore promote it, right? We struggle with that in all of our relationships. We struggle with it in parenting. We fear that if we're too easy on our kids that we'll just promote their self-centered, sinful lifestyle. And we see that in people who are too easy on their kids. They become very self-centered and, and sinful and their relationships are extra difficult. On the other hand, we know the discipline and correction is required, but we're also afraid at times of being too hard because if we're too hard on them, we just make them angry and alienate the relationship anyway. And this is the tension that we face in life. It's the divide that we constantly struggle with to overcome in all of our relationships, this divide of sin. How do we bridge that? And the fact of the matter is Jesus doesn't give us clear-cut answers. He gives us Guideposts. I mean, relationships are not clear-cut. You can't say in every single circumstance, always do this or always do that. Jesus gives us some guideposts to navigate how to make these decisions in the moment in the right way. And he actually, the guidepost all, it really centers around one idea. It centers around the idea of authority. You see, for the religious leaders, authority starts in being right and making sure everyone else knows what is right and what's wrong, what's, and, and, and those who are wrong are clearly delineated from those who are right. And it's a belief that raw truth is what changes us and leads us to change. And unless we realize how wrong we are, we will never, ever change. So our approach is then to overpower people with being right until they relent. And they change. It's a belief as well that we should be more afraid of sin and how it could spread than being patient with an individual's sin and bringing redemption and healing and hoping that redemption and healing comes. For Jesus, though, authority, and authority is essentially the credibility to ask for change, isn't it? Authority, the credibility to ask for change, starts in identifying with the other person. In essence, in our John passage, Jesus is demonstrating what he taught in one other place in Matthew 7. He says this. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly and remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Jesus is making an extremely strong point here. And it's a point that's often taken out of context and used wrongly by our culture when, they, when our culture responds saying, well, Bible, if, you're, if you believe the Bible, if you, if you believe Jesus, then you're not supposed to judge people. Well, yes and no. Let me explain that. What Jesus is actually teaching in this particular text in Matthew and given us an example of in John is this, that, that identifying, his focus is really not so much on the judgment issue, it's on the identifying with others and about being generous with our mercy. His main point is, for with the measure of generosity you use in compassion and mercy, that same measure will be given to you as a person. You see, we often get riled up um, inside about justice. We are offended or we see something wrong happen and we want things to be right. So we get riled up and then we talk about it. We rile up people around us and they rile us up more and then we go to the pundits who agree with us to rile us up even more and we focus on righting the wrong. And in the noise of all that that is going on there, we have a hard time seeing ourselves and the situation accurately. I mean, think about it. Have you ever had a heated conversation with someone accusing them of being wrong and after several minutes, maybe several hours, maybe several days or weeks, you realize that something you said was heard in a way that you never intended it to be heard? Something that was hurt the other person was that they were hurt by something you never intended to communicate. And you realize that much of the intensity that you've experienced is you never needed to have. And the minute you began to realize that you feel this, you feel the anger, you feel the tension in your chest melt, and you feel a little bit embarrassed maybe even at the thing that things got so heated when they didn't need to be. You see, it's so easy for us to get caught up in our own understanding of things, of the crowd's understanding, of the politician's understanding, of the media's understanding, and, and we do or we believe things that are sometimes wrong, sometimes crazy, just sometimes stupid things. I mean, it happens to every single one of us. All we have to do is look no further than reading people's Facebooks on a regular basis, right? It all happens to all of us at some point. And when you look at that, idea lived out in this interaction with Jesus and the religious leaders and this woman caught in adultery, what do we see Jesus doing? The crowd comes to him all riled up about a justice issue, and Jesus pauses, he stoops down, and he writes in the sand, and he creates this really awkward space of silence. So that the religious leaders ask, the text says again and again, they're asking again and again. So this is a fairly long, awkward space of silence Jesus is creating. And finally, he gets up and answers. And theologians actually have three ideas as to what Jesus was doing. And I think actually, I think all of them are actually accurate and correct. And I'm going to add a fourth idea that I think is just practical from my own experience. I've, I've done so much group conflict resolution in the past that I think Jesus is doing something at first that's just really outrageously practical when conflict is happening and accusations are flying in the, in the face of everybody. He's just, a lot of times bringing resolution in a time like that just means slowing the emotions, slowing the pace of speech lowering the tonal intensity. And by doing that, you begin to create this pause and you begin to create this opportunity for this train wreck that's going pell-mell to just slow for just a moment before it hits the barrier at the ends and runs off the tracks. 
And I think Jesus is doing that kind of wisdom that we all understand and learn about conflict issues. But I think what the theologians are saying is also true. And the first thing that they say about this text is that Jesus, when he stoops down to write in the sand, is actually writing the sins and the failings of the religious leaders. And the reason they assert this is because the Greek word in this text is not the normal Greek word used for writing. It's actually a Greek word that if you look at elsewhere in literature, it was used to refer to the legal writing down of charges against someone, of recording the wrongs against someone. And it's very likely that Jesus in this moment, that the only people around him who can actually read what he's writing are the educated religious leaders. And so he's sitting down there writing this stuff, and then he gets up and he says, sure, yes, she deserves stoning. Go ahead. Go ahead, stoner. And let the one of you who is without sin be the first to cast the stone. And then they all walk away, one at a time, stunned, humbled before him. See, Jesus identifies with both the accusers and the accused in a profoundly amazing way in this. And and, and the funny thing about this passage is Jesus is the only one who could have ever picked up a stone and thrown it because he's the only one who is without sin in the group. Authority, even when it comes from one who is sinless, when it comes from God himself, when it comes through from Jesus himself, begins with compassionate identification with the one caught in sin. And if it begins that way for Jesus, how much more should that be the beginning point for us in our use of authority. Authority starts in compassion of understanding the temptations and drives, the brokenness and pain, the misplaced desires that led someone into the darkness and the trap that they find their life in because of sin right now. It's the response of a doctor. I mean, Jesus himself earlier in, in another place says that he's, uh, he's the doctor who came for the sick, not for those who are healthy. And a doctor doesn't respond to one who's broken and diseased even if that person caused it because of a direct result of their error or their sin, a doctor doesn't respond to that person with judgment and rejection, but with a desire to save, to heal, and if not heal, to at least minimize the pain and to help them cope better with life. And Jesus invites us, as he invited the accusing crowd, to that same kind of response that by necessity, must also be followed with uh, not just a consistent uh, an identification with the compassion that we have for them, but a, an identification with our own sin. Because Jesus says, let the one who is without sin be the first one to cast the stone. Reflect on your own state of sin. Identify with your own sin so that you feel like you're on the same plane with the other person because we all are. And Jesus takes it even further. And let me ask you this question to get into how he takes it further. Think of the greatest, most repulsive sin you can think of. The sin that makes you the most angry, that revolts you, that you vote against passionately with an angry voice in your politics. What is it? Is it intolerance? Is it gay marriage? Is it greed? What is it? Is it unfaithfulness? Is it, is it adultery, rejection, abuse that, that you've been so hurt by in the past? What, what is it that causes you to cry out for justice, that turns you into a crusader? Um, to experience the Jesus life, 
and his forgiving and transforming power. Jesus is calling us to identify in mercy and compassion. But further, he says that response shouldn't be one of anger, but it should be one of actually grief, grieving, which is actually the other view that the theologians believe is happening here with Jesus. They believe that he shrunk to the ground and he looked down in compassion while his eyes were tearing up because of him looking at the tragedy of sin on the part of the woman and how much pain it was bringing and the tragedy of sin on the religious people's part and how much pain it was bringing by driving wedges. You know how it feels when you face pain and a realization of how simple it could be for love to abound in this situation. And yet people, people continue repeatedly stay stuck in destructive habits and it breaks your heart. And identifying involves not just identifying with our own sin, but identifying with the essence of the power of sin in general and grieving, grieving that power and the effect it has, how sin alienates relationship and destroys happiness, how it tears families and marriages apart, how the religious leaders in them, it drives wedges where it should instead be driving bridges of friendship. It drives wedges and alienates people. And this adulterous woman, uh, her experience of the great sadness of the woman's pain and the insecurity that led her to find love in this way in the first place, of the families that were torn apart because of her actions, of, of the pain of a religious sin that seeks to crush people into humility instead of love them into humility. See, the third primary view of what Jesus is doing is also our second guiding question, which is this. How do we overcome the noise of the crowd and learn to respond to people in the power of the Holy Spirit, demonstrating the life of Jesus? And many commentators believe that Jesus stooping down is also because of the loudness, of the intense pressure of the crowd, of the demand of this really very tricky trap, this question that pits justice and mercy in the most difficult terms against one another is initially overwhelming to Jesus. And Jesus needs space to think and pray and figure out what to do. It's Jesus' way of taking the time to respond instead of react. And all of us know that's important, an important distinction, isn't it? I mean, how many times do we get into fights or make things worse because we react rather than responding thoughtfully, intentionally, wisely, and we say things that amplify problems? And, and what we're actually seeing here in Jesus and his ability to take that pause is an outcome of Jesus' life and habits. The Gospels record Jesus having very strong, a very strong rhythm in his life of taking time away to pray and process life. Now, I realize that sounds a little bit weird. God, Jesus, taking time away to pray to God. I mean, that's just kind of a weird thought, isn't it? But that gets to one of the main, uh, main understandings the Bible teaches us. Paul teaches us at best and most succinctly in Colossians where he says that somehow when God became incarnate in Jesus, he laid aside his rights as God in a way that he would live life and face life the same way you and I do and needing to be the same kind of dependent on the leading and power of the Holy Spirit in our life as we do. Somehow in a mystery, he's able to do that. And Jesus, in that living of that life, created a healthy rhythm of prayer. And prayer includes, I know it includes talking to God about my needs and wants, and we do that, and that's a very, very small part of prayer. But prayer involves worshiping God too. 
It's because when we worship, not just, not just singing the songs on Sunday, we can worship through singing those songs, and I hope you do, and, uh, and we, we want to, but, but worshiping in my thoughts as I go to sleep, and worshiping throughout the day, remembering, and not just remembering, but sometimes verbally stating and declaring how, out loud how good, how strong, how faithful God has been, the promises God has given us over our life, because when we worship, there's something inside of us. It settles something inside of us. I don't know any other way to describe it. It's just, it brings this peace. It brings this settledness. It brings a, the pow, a power to face life as you interact and worship with the Holy Spirit. It makes conflict or pressure seem less big and it allows us space to think and act more clearly and confidently. And prayer also involves lots of listening. Asking God questions. Asking God questions about what's going on inside of you right now. And what, what, are, what are these feelings about? What are these thoughts about? It's asking God what's going on in the people around you. Asking God what's going on in the, in the, in relation to the stressors in your life and the problems you're facing. And, and, and I love Graham Cook's, that Wendy loves and has talked about before. His, his, his question that he often asks, he says, God, who do you want to be to me now in this moment, in this circumstance, in the midst of this problem and there's in the midst of these feelings that you couldn't be to me before asking God questions and letting him have the space to come to us and speak to us you see prayer is mostly mostly about worship and asking questions and listening and experiencing the presence and peace of God and I notice in myself when I get out of a regular rhythm of prayer that I more easily get caught up in the clamor of the issues of the crowd or the pundits or the politicians or the relationship challenges that we all face. And things become bigger and they become more difficult than they really are. And the difficult things become hopeless in life. And sometimes the sense of anxiety is amplified by the crowd around us, just feeding into that. And Jesus is showing us what it can be like to face things that we would normally be riled up about and be different in the face of it, be more clear-hearted, clear-headed, and clear in our decisions. It's the fruit in him that we're seeing of a regular, consistent habits of prayer and worship and listening to God, allowing him in this moment to be comfortable, creating this awkward space in life for God to, as our text said, give peace last week, give peace in the face of an impending storm, not the peace that is fickle that the world gives, but a peace that lasts. It's Jesus' rhythm showing up strong in this moment. He finds himself able to pause and then be led by the Holy Spirit in such creative, odd and effective in an effective manner, isn't it? Also, it's a clear reflection of how secure Jesus is in his relationship with God. And Jesus is inviting us into that same kind of security with him. I noticed in myself recently uh, for a while this growing sense of angst. It just... I, I, I normally think of myself as a really secure person. I've done tons of conflict resolution in the past. I normally think of myself as just a really secure person, but I, I had this growing angst and I kept asking God about it and wondering about it. And for a while I was just, you know, I mean, I was just trying to rest more and I needed that at the time that I was going through it. I was actually dealing with a cold and sick and I was just overly tired from working too much and I needed the rest. That's a good part of the rhythm. And I, I was trying to get a little more recreation and that's also a really healthy part of rhythm that we need in life, isn't it? And, but neither of those things was resolving the angst in me. 
And as I began to ask more questions of God about it and pray about it, I, I began to realize that I was really, I was really getting insecure about some areas in my life and some things in my life. And I just couldn't believe it. I was actually angry that I was getting insecure, which is not really a good thing to do. And as I began to ask more questions, I all of a sudden realized, you know, in my prayer life, I had gotten out of a healthy balance of the rhythm of worship, of me declaring the promises of God, of declaring how good he was and how faithful he was and remembering the way he's, the ways he's been that to me in my life. And I hadn't kept that worship part of the prayer strong. And as I began to worship, I began to finally have that angst go away and the security become stronger and God's presence and peace and goodness again became more and more real. And Jesus is inviting all of us to live from a place like that that allows us, even in the most intense, difficult divides of life, to be the most winsome people on the planet, reaching across those divides with kindness and clarity that others cannot do, able to address sin in a way that doesn't amplify guilt but amplifies healing and builds relationship. See, notice as well in this text that Jesus is not soft on sin in this passage at all. He acts with this profound mercy in this profound way. And as he does, he confronts the sin of the crowd through a simple statement. He who is without sin casts the first stone and, and allows a softness and a humility to just infect the crowd and confront the sin of the crowd. And then out of that trust of that act of great kindness, he's crystal clear with the woman. I mean, look at the text. It says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, declared Jesus. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus is giving her this second chance. Maybe it's third, maybe it's fourth, maybe it's 11th chance. We don't know, but he's giving her this other chance, but yet he commands her to stop sinning. And the question is, what's more powerful for someone to be motivated to be free of sin? Is it, is it more powerful to be told you're wrong until you're broken and you're convinced you're absolutely wrong and you're crushed? Or is it more powerful to bring change to know you're wrong and be given such extravagant kindness in spite of it? What brings more change? And see, Jesus is not saying here, that there's never a time for judgment or condemnation. He speaks clearly elsewhere, and Paul does as well, that, that either at our own death or when he returns, the patience that we experience now when we refuse to follow him, when we, when we choose to, to overtly stay in our sin, that patience will one day go away, and there will be judgment, a judgment day. See, Jesus doesn't teach us that not judging... He, I'm getting too many knots there, aren't I? Hope you understand that. Too many double negatives. I might get a triple on you here in a second. Jesus, Jesus says, uh, teaches us that when we think of not judging, it doesn't mean you, you never say something is right or wrong. Uh, other places, Jesus and Paul say we should judge each, judge one another and to realistically, clearly deal with what is right and wrong. You see, when we equate not judging with not taking a position on right and wrong, and we go through life saying things like, well, whatever is good for them is good for them, and how am I to know? Right? Which is real common in our culture. We've all said that at times. We abdicate being like Jesus. Jesus was crystal clear on right and wrong. 
He just didn't relate to people in a way that condemned them. Rather, he reached out to them in a winsome way that identified with them, and he exercised authority and a call to change from a place of compassion and a desire to redeem. And he lived it out in such winsome ways that caused the worst of sinners to want to be his friends. Isn't that powerful? And he was able to face the riled up cries for justice and the moral clubs of people that were coming against those who were in sin with a winsomeness that broke down even those barriers and built relationship to them as well across those divides. And he won many, not all, but he won many. And Jesus asks us as his followers to live in that same winsome way, understanding that undeserved kindness, patience, and mercy is more powerful at breaking the bondage of sin than condemnation and proving someone's wrong. Because the reality is most people know their sin already deep down. Even if they argue on the surface that they're right, there's this angst within them that betrays that. And deep down, they really know they're sinful in that area. So let's apply this. Who's the person in your life whose sin riles you up the most and who you tend to have other people around you get riled up the most, causing condemnation or causing activism to erupt in your heart. I want you to spend the next couple of moments engaging with the music as the worship team comes. I want you to worship God. And I want you to be thinking of that person, that relationship, that difficult tension in your life. And I want you to allow through the worship the words and, and your own thoughts, just to declare your own thoughts of who God is over your emotions and who God is over the pain and who God is over that specific difficult relationship in your life. And ask God to come to you through that time of worship and touch you with peace and with strength. And ask the Holy Spirit, how do you want me, how do you want me to live winsomely in this particular relationship? Lord, we ask that you would come to us now because each one of us have those difficult relationships. We've got it somewhere. Maybe some have worse than others, but we've got it somewhere. And I ask, Lord, that you would teach us to be like you. And Lord, as we worship you, that you expose in our hearts the areas where we need to grieve our own sin, where we need to identify in compassion, that you would allow us to be able to think like you think, to see that pain in other people and relate to it and identify with them, and that you would teach us to reach them in the same way you reached this crowd and this woman caught in adultery. And Lord, that you would give us the blessing of being the most winsome people because of your life being so strong, so powerful among us. Lord, we welcome your spirit. Come and be with us now as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.